Have you ever looked up in the sky and wondered, are we the only intelligent beings in this solar system or this galaxy? Please join me in this conversation with Martin Keller. He is a former pop culture journalist and has been published in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Final Frontier, Billboard, Rolling Stone, and countless other publications. He is also the author of The Space Pen Club, An Insider's Tale, A Personal Journey. Do you believe in UFOs? Well, I get a little cagey about the use of belief. Do you believe in UFOs? It's it's like, do you believe in a higher power? I don't, I'm not sure that's the right verb to use. I, do you know or do you think UFOs are a reality? And to that question, I would say yes. I think when you drag the notion of beliefs into it, it connotes a lot of religious or faith-based ideas that I don't think are relevant at the top of that Mm -hmm. discussion. I agree with you on that. And that's one of the reasons why I want to just throw that one right out there and ask you up front. But before we really get into the UFO UAPs, I was wondering if you can give a background as to who you are and why got into this. Well, a couple of things. As a kid growing up in western remote North Dakota, I was always interested in space and the early space program captured my imagination. I was a space geek kid. I rode away to NASA for information on the space programs, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, and got back a bunch of public relations material outlining each each mission and then a bunch of autographed photos of the astronauts in those in those early space programs. So, you know, in addition to being a, a kid who also loved pop and rock music, I, I was really interested in space and subsequently got interested in UFOs, especially after a couple of sightings in high school with friends. And fast forward, after I got out of college, I eventually moved into journalism. I, I covered pop culture for about 10 or 12 years here in the Twin Cities, and then I got tired of it, and I went into public relations work. I went to the other side of the desk, which, you know, I, I think you'll find is fairly common among journalists, especially these days. It's a better payday, number one, but, you know, with journalism in the age of the internet morphing all the time and jobs disappearing it's it was probably a a prescient move on my part a lot of my friends who were in journalism did the same thing so you know i covered the scene when as prince ascended it to become an international rock star i interviewed bob dylan i had a rare interview with dylan in 83 and you know so i bob marley bonnie Raitt comedians like Louis Anderson, Jerry Seinfeld, etc. And I wrote about that in my other memoir called Hijinks and Hearsay, Scenester Stories from Minnesota's Pop Life. So I did that until about the early 90s, but I've always done some writing on the side. And I hadn't thought much about the UFO subject in a long time once I went away to college, and even less so when I... You know, when I started a professional career, and it wasn't until about 1991 where a friend of mine told me about 
this doctor, medical doctor in Asheville, North Carolina, doing interesting things with the UFO subject. Human-initiated contact with whoever or whatever were in these objects. And that was, of course, Dr. Stephen Greer, the founder of the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So the friend had approached me to do a profile of him for a magazine to be determined later, a publication of some kind, because he wanted more exposure for what he was doing and for his fledgling organization, C-SETI. And Greer's whole thing, of course, was Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, CE5 initiative, and later some major disclosure efforts. So I came, I came into it at that point as a journalist. I could not publish what I thought was a really well-written 18-page profile of Greer and C. Seti. And, you know, I pitched it to places like Vanity Fair and some other mainstream publications. And there's, you know, just nothing going on. I could probably have sold that story 10 times to any number of internet outlets today. But the internet was in its infancy in the early 90s. And uh, I told Greer, I said, I can probably get you more exposure as a publicist than as, you know, a freelance journalist trying to place a story about you where there's simply not a lot of interest in that. Now, of course, mainstream media has finally come around and discovered, hey, this is a real subject. Yeah. It's taken a little bit of time. A lot of curiosity, but like I said, the um, mainstream publications and stuff like that just were a little hesitant. I used to work for a newspaper as well. And like I said, but the age of the internet kind of put all that aside, but... I think it's also opened up a lot of doors and given us a lot of opportunity to get more information. There's almost too much information on this subject and a lot of it's junk. A lot of it's junk you file, so let the reader beware. I quote a lot of what I hope are the best sources on the topic in my book, which I like to call a historical, cultural, and personal memoir. There's a lot of sort of good footnotes, if you will. And I know one person, Dan Aykroyd, Saturday Night Live actor, producer, writer, very generous, generously wrote a rousing endorsement for it. And it, one of the things he said about the book is that it was a great bibliography for people who wanted to find out more about this topic, because I do hopefully go to all the, I think, bona fide, genuine sources who've written about this previously. Now you actually have had, as you mentioned, in the high school time frame, like an experience, a sighting, right? Yeah, I had a sighting with three other high school friends in the middle of February, very, very cold, like maybe 20 below that night. It was during the intermission of a, of a high school basketball game. And uh, there'd been a lot of UFO sightings out in that part of the state during that week. And the mainstream media at that point, which consisted largely of radio, tel television, and newspapers, were reporting on it. And someone said there was a white oval-shaped object about a quarter of the mile down the road to the west of the, of the high school. And we all ran outside and observed it. We left our coats in the bleachers. <laughs> and somebody suggested that we should drive over there and see it. And I think I was the idiot who... who put the kibosh on that idea. I said, no, it's 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 cold. We don't have our coats. There's a good game inside. And, and besides, this is what every seeing 
or reporting this week in the in the press. So I wish I had that one to do over again. But a few nights prior to that, a close friend of mine who who I've known since I was five, he and I had an experience in the park behind his house. And I don't know how much you know about North Dakota topography, but it's very flat and the highest in this little town we grew up in was called Rocky Butte Park because it was a, a butte that kind of rose up over the Great Plains out there. And our little red spherical object descended from what seemed to be the, the top of the, of the butte of the park and came down toward us and kind of hovered about 10 feet away from us. We had no idea what this was. We still have no idea what it was. Wow. And the, that incident is captured pretty, pretty, pretty well in detail in, in my book. But fast forward to 1991, when I was finishing my, my feature story on Greer, I encountered five of these little red spheres in my bedroom at 4.03 in the morning. I know it was 4.03 and that I was awake because I looked at the clock twice to make sure I wasn't dreaming. And again, I had no idea what they were. I still don't today. That's kind of one of the narrative threads in this book. Are they, were these extraterrestrial? Were they interdimensional? Were they some sort of poltergeist? Were they you know, demonic, as some folks might have conjectured, but there were some residual side effects from the five in the bedroom that night that lasted a two or three day period, some physical side effects that, that were somewhat, that again is, is detailed pretty heavily in the Space Pen Club. As far as the Space Pen Club, folks can go to www.thespacepenclub.com and get some more information about yourself, read a little bit about your book, or they can go to Amazon and and purchase the book as well, right? Yeah, Amazon's going to be your best place to, to make that purchase. I guess I have to add on to my previous statement that this incident with the five little cherry bombs, as I call them at one point, was preceded by some high strangeness events in our house that started about four or five months previously. You know, mm -hmm. lights coming on that we had turned off before bed, my wife and I, and strange sounds in the room. And, I mean, this went on all summer. It started in the spring and went on through the summer. And again, not sure what it was about, but not something you easily forget or can readily try to forget. So there's, there's definitely a lot of unexplained things that happen, I think, in and around all of us. Like I said, whether it be interdimensional, outer space, under the sea, whatever and wherever it might be. But uh, what do you think? I mean, is it also interpretation, how we interpret something? Oh, definitely. And, and you know, I think it's easy for, for people to misinterpret mm -hmm. things that happen to them that are maybe ultimately inexplicable. I mean, I think as a planetary society or family, we... We're just beginning to find out what the woo-woo is all about, what yeah. the strangeness is all about, or what it might be about or what it might not be about. So we're at an interesting point in time, especially with the UFO discussion. You know, the New York Times story of December 17th, 2017, really 
kind of blew the bolts off this and kind of started a media stampede around it. And I think that eventually led to these congressional hearings that started earlier this spring in Washington. I think we're going to see some other another one this fall yet before the new year. So it's it's a, it's a huge sea change. I don't think any of us really saw it coming. Certainly, most of us who followed this for a lifetime, like say for example Dan Aykroyd or myself and other people who've written books on this and continue to research it, we couldn't have predicted it. Just given how cynical this su this subject was in the mainstream and how perfectly marginalized it had been dealt with or managed since really since Roswell. With NASA really not even putting much into as far as funds, funding into any type of research, but at least they are now have an interest once again, and I don't know if that's due to... Yeah, they, they've jumped on the bandwagon, which I don't know. It, it, one of the first disclosure efforts in Washington, D.C. That, that Greer and C. Seti piloted in 1997, we had a, an alleged witness who had worked at NASA in Houston, as a subcontractor, her name is Donna, and she said that she saw UFO photos and lots of satellite images that were being processed, and she also saw, saw the people on these desks airbrushing them out and oh. telling, telling her they did this as kind of a, you know, on a on almost daily basis. It was routine MO for them. It's So it, it's hard to to know where NASA's going on this, again, it's a surprise, but you know, when the Pentagon and the, and the intelligence agencies come forward with setting up their own office, they, I think they don't want to be late to the game. It, yeah, perhaps my first thought as far as NASA jumping back into this is, it's a popular topic right now and we need some PR. Let's get in on this and ride the wave while we can. Yeah, you know, funding cycles in Washington always come around, you know, annually or biannually, and, and uh, I think that's always one thing that's considered, you know, are you making news with what you're doing, or we, why should we continue to fund the space program? Well, now we're going back to the moon. I'm not sure exactly why or why we stopped in the first place, other than possibly a funding issue. We were slated to go to Mars and that never, you know, that that program was canceled early on. In fact, there's a chapter early in the Space Pen Club book about meeting Brian O'Leary, who was one of the first Marsnauts chosen to go to Mars. And Brian ended up, you know, a brilliant guy. He went to Princeton and has a bunch of letters after his name, but when I met him, he was involved in what I, it seemed like a lot of new agey stuff, and I just said, you know, how did this guy go native in woo-woo land, but, you know, uh, a lot of interesting characters in the book, other astronauts like Dr. Ed Mitchell, pa Apollo astronaut, six guy to walk on the moon, good cast of characters. Well, it's amazing, like you're naming off a lot of important figures in I'd say history really that you have been able to interview talk with and have them be part of your memoir and once again the space pen club is your book so you know, folks who have an interest in this definitely should at least check it out 
you know, when it start when this whole business started in the in the nineties and rekindled my youthful interest in the subject, I, you know, I called it a side hustle, but it's really been kind of a a lifelong interest. Some some might say obsession. But yeah, there's ten chapters in the book set in various locations. Western North Dakota, obviously, an Indian reservation in South Dakota for a the, the world's first star knowledge com conference where the indigenous people from North America were sharing what they knew about this subject. They'd been pretty quiet up until that point. And again, this was in the late 90s. And all the major non-native researchers like and experiencers like Whitley Strieber, Dr. John Mack from Harvard, and others were at this event. And there's a whole chapter about that. Here's a spoiler, oddly enough, on the on the drive out there. I, I went out there to, get, to give Dr. Greer's lecture because he couldn't make that trip. And on the way out there, about 90 minutes away from Marty, South Dakota, where the Star Knowledge Conference was being held. In the middle of the day, clear blue sky. The guy I was traveling with looked out my window and said, there's an arrow in the sky. <laughs> and I looked out the window and sure enough, there was this like chalk-like arrow, just a, almost like a line drawing that appeared in the sky. And you could see the arrowhead and then the tail, the tail pointing in the direction of the conference. I almost went, into the ditch off of the freeway <laughs> and we were obviously stunned and surprised by this we had two video camcorders on board and a couple of, of good still photo photo cameras and we didn't even think to oh. document it because we were i mean middle of nowhere this appears and then at the conference on the second day there was a, a drum drum and chanting ceremony going on outside the building where the festival was being held in a in a similar drawn circle appeared over the circle on the ground where people were drumming and chanting. I didn't see that, but my friend did. In fact, he came in to find me. He said, you got to come out and see this. It's the same sort of dimensional shape or elements as, as what we saw with the flying arrow, the unidentified flying arrow. And... Uh, I couldn't get out there because the word had gotten out and now the, all the doors out of this old high school were jammed and by the time I got out there the thing had had disappeared but everybody out there was talking about it. It was pretty impressive. Wow. You know, that's the thing. I, it's Some folks, many folks will question, well, with everybody having cell phones that have these great cameras on it, why is it that we have not caught any any real good image, real good footage? And kind of going along with what you said, as far as being in the car and the arrow, I think the first thought is no thought at all. You're almost in shock. You're like, what? And then those things don't just stay there. And then by the time you get around, like, oh my gosh, I can get my phone or camera out. It's gone or else you're so shaky trying to zoom in. You can't get a good picture. Yeah, cell phones weren't a thing back when when, when this <laughs> yeah. but, You know, I have to challenge you on that about there's not being a lot of good images. A few months back, I, I watched a presentation by a well-known Mexican researcher, Jaime Massan, 
who used to run a program in Mexico City called 60 Minutos. It was kind of a Mexican knockoff of our 60 Minutes, and he had done a lot of reporting on this subject. And he subsequently has gone down the rabbit hole and pretty much the rest of his life to investigating this. And he's his last video compil compilation curated of from objects around the world is, is pretty mind-blowing. I, I forget the title of it, but I'm sure you can find it online. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of images out there. Obviously, many or some of them are hoaxed. Others are misidentified or misinterpreted, but I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a shortage of, of visual evidence or imagery. That's true. I didn't mean to say that there are not any, and especially coming from me, because like I said, there's plenty of evidence out there that look like they're UFOs or UAPs. They haven't been debunked as not being that. So if you can't identify it and if it's flying, what is it? It's, yeah, um, I, I mean, I think I think the, the images that stick in people's minds now are these Tic Tac objects that were exposed in the New York Times and subsequently 60 Minutes and many other mainstream news sources. And nobody seems to know exactly what they are. Some folks think they're some sort of high-tech drones that are in stealth black programs. Other people think they're the real deal, that they're some sort of extraterrestrial probe, but we don't know. I'm not all that impressed with those images. When I first saw them, I thought, these are these are tick-tock images. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of poor quality, and they're dancing around, and they can't really, you know, make out much detail, and but I think that's a prevailing image for better or worse among a lot of people, especially who are new to the subject. But let's see what happens if there's if there's some new new information or new images that, that come to the forefront. Yeah. Well, during that congressional hearing back in May of this year, I know that they brought up some video footage and their explanation from one was at one point in time and another was another point in time and they were identical. But they were saying, well, it's a reflection from the SLR camera being shot through the, the night goggle vision, and it's a refraction of the light. But I, I look at it, and I see it, and I'm going, no, nah, I don't think so. It was. Why, why are you bringing that to the congressional delegation that's interviewing you? I mean, I, I thought that was just a poor performance on, on their part. I agree. The the USOs, the unidentified submersible objects, they're they're pretty interesting, and I'm and glad to see that they're finally come to the forefront as well in the broader discussion. Yeah, transmedium as they call them. Transmedium. Yeah, that they can they can go through any sort of material environment, whether it's space or or submerged in in water. Wow. Uh. You know, all of this is definitely a highly controversial topic, subject matter, but definitely a high interest. And if you don't think it is, or anybody that doesn't think it is, just take a look at all the UFO, sci-fi television shows and movies and things that are out there. It, to me, it's like, why would we have such an interest in that if we don't have some sort of interest in, in the real life as yeah. far as UFOs, UAPs?
Remember to listen to part two of this conversation when Martin and I talk a little bit about Hollywood and the government.